I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and Hello, and welcome to another episode of 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown. Hello, and Stephen Murray. Hello. Now, we're both sounding uncommonly sexy today because I have requested an early morning recording. Which has thrown my routine right out. (laughs) Yes, although the less said about that, the better. (laughs) Less said, soonest mended. So, this is the podcast where we like to ferret around in the trash can of cinematic history, pulling out robots, examining them, and then seeing if we like the cut of their jib, or perhaps deciding that they're a bit rubbish. Fling them back in. And we've, we have flung in more back than we've kept, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Okay, so before we get into the film that we're going to be chatting about this today, I've happened upon a news story that I thought might intrigue you which is robot-related. And when we say robot on this podcast, we mean robots, we mean androids, we mean cyborgs, and we mean AI as well. And uh, the the story concerns artificial intelligence, which, blimey, is is all over the news at the moment, isn't it? Everywhere. Everyone's all sad about it and saying that... I read the other day that apparently it's going to lead to the destruction of the human race. Do you think that's going to happen? Are we going to make ourselves extinct through AI? Um, Well, the news item that I've got um, certainly points in that direction, but you carry on. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll just read you the headline because that was what grabbed me. Um, And the headline, this is um, from Sky News, 2nd of June, 2023. Headline is, South Korea uses AI to weigh North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So. They so they've they've used artificial intelligence to estimate the weight of Kim Jong Un. They said that they were worried because he'd he'd appeared in public with dark circles under his uh, around his eyes during a, a public appearance on May the sixteenth, and so they they wanted to estimate his weight, and it's been estimated at one hundred and forty kilograms. Now, if like me, you have absolutely no idea what that means, I've converted it into stone. And it's 22 stone. If you were a superhero, you'd be Converto. (laughs) Who says I'm not? Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) So Kim Jong-un, according to South Korean AI, is 22 stone. Now, I know know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how tall is Kim Jong-un? What's his BMI doing? What's what's that situation? So he is apparently five foot seven which means that his BMI is 48.3. According to the NHS BMI Healthy Weight Calculator, the results suggest he is obese. A healthy weight range for his height is more like 8 stone 6 to 11 stone. So he's, he's sort of double, double the, the top end of where he should be. I mean, all we're doing is we're suggesting, Kim Jong-un, if you're listening, can we suggest that Losing and keeping off 5% of your weight could have health benefits, such as lowering your blood pressure and reducing your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I I didn't really get the gist of that to begin with, and I'm just thinking, why don't they just weigh him? And then I suddenly realised it's South Korea estimating North Korea. Yes. So, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want my news item? 
Yeah, go on. An AI-controlled US military drone kills its operator in simulated test because the operator was getting in the way of the AI completing its mission. <laughs> See, this sort of thing doesn't it doesn't do any favours. It doesn't today. bode well, Matt. It does not bode well. Okay, let's have a let's have a little look at the film in question today, which is a nineteen sixty one Japanese film called Invasion of the Neptune Men. Um and this is now I think is this our third planet that we've we've had? We've mm, got yeah. Neptune, we've we've just had Venus. We've just yeah. looked at Venus. And we've had Mars, obviously. Have um, we had Mars? Yeah, a devil girl from Mars. Oh, of course. How can I forget her? How can you forget that? Oh, good God. Um, we've had other we've had other planets, haven't we? There's the the what's the planet in the Mysterious? <clears throat> Mysterioid. Is it a Mysterioid? <laughs> that sounds a bit like a, a something painful you'd have on your bottom, doesn't it? You get a cream for it. <laughs> it's all right, dear. It's, you've just got a case of the Mysterioids. <laughs> So Neptune is our, our third sort of um, solar system planet that we're visiting in this film. Just very briefly, just very, very briefly, the plot is, it's it's essentially, it's almost not a robot film, this film, isn't it? I had to um, send you a, a message asking where the robots were. Yeah, you did. a message, it was blue, <laughs> that message. <laughs> It's, uh, it's like I'd forced you to do something you really didn't want to do. It's it's just very boring, this film, I thought. Um, a lot of running around. Yeah, a lot of running around. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. A third of the film is running around. Yeah, just this gang of kids running around. But look, let me just quickly do a little, like, just so that, because I'm sure we're the only people listening who have actually watched this film. So... Very quickly, this is a superhero film, uh, and it, it, it features a superhero who is known as Space Chief. <laughs> or Iron Sharp. Yeah. Or, in the original. Uh, yeah. So so um, we're getting, obviously, the dubbed version. Yeah. So in the original, the superhero is called Iron Sharp, and for some reason, it's changed to, sp- <laughs> to Space Chief in this. <laughs> so Space Chief has an alter ego who is an astronomer, Sinichi Tashibana. Um, and Sinichi Tashibana sort of works as uh, a scientist and has lots of children as friends. Yes, let's just leave that there. <laughs> um, some aliens in the form of robots uh, called Neptune Men attack Earth and uh, Space Chief repels them um, once using jujitsu and then increasingly because of they, they create a, an electric barrier that blocks the aliens from coming back to Earth. Um, and then there's like a, a lot of toing and froing. And then in the end, um, Space Chief destroys multiple enemy ships and Japan fires nuclear missiles at the mothership, destroying it. The very first thing I'd say about this film is that it has the most basic title sequence I think we've ever seen in all of our many years of doing this podcast. It's almost like somebody's just holding cards up in front of the... And it does look like they're, they're slightly wobbling a bit. Yeah, it does. It has a sort of a crossroads, 1970s yeah. crossroads <laughs> feel, doesn't it? <laughs> a 
And then the first thing we see is is like a Sputnik-like ship. Yeah. And I'd say that if you haven't listened to our excellent uh, episode on the first spaceship on Venus that um, dropped a couple of weeks ago, then we sort of discuss Sputnik in that. Um, so I guess it's it's in the air, isn't it, at the moment, uh, in, the, in the early 1960s, Very this idea so. of satellites whizzing around. But in this film, they um, align it with kind of an, a Japanese-American alliance, as opposed to there's no mention of Russia whatsoever, because at this time there's an alliance between uh, the um, the Americans and the Japanese in that the Americans now, after dropping a couple of bo- atom bombs on Japan, that there will be a protectorate of Japan. And this treaty was re-signed in 1960. Okay. So there's a big American influence coming along, and you can see this in this film. It's very Americanized. Not Westernized, but Americanized. Okay. So in 1960, Japan still isn't really, it's it's very slowly dragging itself out of old Japan. If you look at any footage from 19, the 60s, there are still geisha girls, there are still very much traditional outfits on the streets of Japan. There's no skyscrapers, Tokyo is still almost an ordinary Japanese city from the old school. Mm-hmm. So it was from the 1960s onwards. We wouldn't get the big tech in, in uh, Japan until the 70s. But it's becoming westernized, and you can see that in the clothes, in the kids in this. They've got baseball boots on and, and baseball caps. There's a scene, isn't there, in a, a, a cafe with lots of young people, and they've got very uh, American westernized outfits on. Yeah, all dancing to a record. Yes, on a jukebox. One of the things, I know this is slightly jumping ahead, but it feels like it's connected to this. One of the things I was thinking about, the fact that once again, you've got a Japanese film that we're watching that when nuclear weapons play a sort of central role. In in the the Mysterians, there's a there's a huge sort of like storyline to it, which is where it's, there's a warning about nuclear weapons, as there was in um, The Day the Earth Stood Still as well. Yeah. However, in this, it feels like Japan are now like firing off nuclear weapons in order to show how strong they are, I suppose. It feels they're like there's using... a mood shift. Yeah, they're using it as a tool, aren't they? As they opposed are. to... Yeah, and I thought that was interesting, maybe in saying more about something about Japan being, I don't know, maybe more confident. You've got to understand that in the 1960s, they still made over 550 films. So the film industry was churning away. There was a gigantic uh, coal strike that lasted nearly an entire year. There were riots. So I think out of chaos, Japan was beginning to rise with the help of America as well in this treaty that was re-signed in 1960. Here's President Eisenhower speak of the new treaty of mutual cooperation and security before the signatures are affixed. This treaty represents the fulfillment of the goal set by Prime Minister Kishi and myself in June of 1957 to establish an indestructible partnership between our two countries in which our relations would be based on complete equality and mutual understanding. I mean, there's um, one <laughs> one sort of aspect to this film that, that uh, you, you noticed right from the beginning. It's dubbed and it is so badly dubbed it becomes something that you focus on. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. You're sort of listening out for how bad it is. And and when I say bad, I mean that the actors that they've used, um, essentially you've got this group of about six, half a dozen kids who appear quite a lot in the film. They're pretty central to the plot. 
and they're all voiced by adults who are, try- <laughs> who are oh. trying to <laughs> trying to put on really squeaky voices. But it's so bizarre. Do you think you and Kenny's father could design a spaceship all by yourselves? Why, sure. A scientist like Dr. Tonaway can. And Mr. Debon is his right arm. Isn't that so, sir? So why do you think they changed the name Iron Sharp to Space Chief? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. I don't know whether it was to fit in with because, but by now in the nineteen sixties, there's a huge um, comic industry in America, uh, and I think Space Chief fits in more than Iron. Although I don't know, Iron Sharp sounds great for either DC or Marvel, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I can imagine a, a a very sort of like minor character, yeah, Marvel character, one that Stanley's had a really heavy night. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's had to very quickly come up with a name and he's come up with the name Iron Sharp. Uh, but Space Chief just sounds so bland, doesn't it? It sounds it's, like so it's so vanilla. It's as bland as his vehicle that he whizzes around in. Which so literally very- looks like it's a just knocked together by kids and a pram. <laughs> yeah, no, did you I don't know if you noticed, but on I think on Wikipedia it's called a spaceship brackets vehicle. <laughs> Because at various times it can either fly or it then turns into a sort of 1950s car, doesn't it? Yeah. At one point. It does. Um, So so we we begin the the film with these kids who are trying to find a satellite or they're looking for a satellite and they, they see through their telescope, they see something plummet to Earth, which they assume is a satellite. It isn't. It's a spaceship full of uh, robots from Neptune. Now you say robots. This was one of your queries that you texted me. But they do they do to all intents and purposes look quite a lot like men wearing jumpsuits, don't they? With yeah. but but they've got like a big helmet on, which viewed from a certain angle looks extraordinarily phallic. <laughs> Do you know what I was going to say? That the helmet looks very much like a modified um, Robbie the Robot helmet. It does, yeah, it does. Because they've got the little twiddly bits on it. But now now I'm just going to see phallus. <laughs> no, you're right. It does look... Robbie the Robot is a good, a good comparison to make. It does look like that. So if you imagine somebody wearing, a man wearing a silver jumpsuit with gloves on and boots and then having a Robbie the Robot head. That's sort of exactly what you've got. I did uh, like the interior of their ship. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was <coughs> quite good. Yeah, as a plus point. What did you, you, know, what did you think of the design of the robots? Oh, it, because it's loads of kids running around, and I think it's essentially a kid's film, they're not far off like a, a Cyberman from Doctor Who. Yeah. And I think, I think they, were, they were okay. And it's 1960, and, you know, I think they probably would have loved it. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, and I, I think they were okay. Yeah, I think that they do. Uh, it's unfortunate that they look so much like a, a man in a boiler suit. And they did act like they did act like they had, you know, huge emotions and anger and yeah, all of that. I, yeah, I there was nothing. The only time they become sinister uh, is when they take on the form of Japanese soldiers. Yeah, which is coming later. later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd say that they weren't they weren't brilliant, but they weren't the worst thing about this film. No. <laughs> there's a, at the beginning there's this there's this big fight between the Neptune men and um Space Chief where Space Chief kind of does lots of um 
martial arts moves uh, in order to vanquish the the, the aliens. <laughs> but seemingly, he he doesn't ever make contact with a single no. one. Um, but they they get frightened by his leg kicks. And there's always two or three that are just waiting for their turn. Yeah, yeah. And and so space, they they all run away and and fly back off to Neptune or back into space. And at that point, Space Chief pulls out a laser gun. And you think, why didn't you use that? Like exactly, like three minutes ago, when you were in this massive karate fight with them. And also, that it just reminds me of of Edna Mode and no capes, because his just his cape just kept flapping yeah. over his head. Yeah, it was in the way. She's right, yeah. is Edna. Absolutely, <laughs> no capes. Isn't that my decision? Do you remember Thunderhead? His cape snagged on a missile. Thunderhead was not the brightest ball. Stratogale. Cape caught in a jet turbine. Metaman. Express elevator. Diner guy. Snag on takeoff. Splashdown. Sucked into a vortex. No kicks. So these kids are really excited to see this this superhero who's vanquished these these robots from outer space. And they rush over to him and they say, hey, what's your name? What's your name? And he says, maybe you should name name me, <laughs> which I thought was a really bad idea because yeah. he ends up with the name Space Chief. Played by Sonny Chiba. Yes. I mean, this is one of the most interesting things about this film, I think. Because um, it must be one of his first films, I suppose. It, it was his first film, I do believe. And Sonny Chiba is a, a Tarantino is a massive fan, isn't he? Yeah. So in fact, he plays he plays a character in Kill Bill, I think, doesn't he? He's in he both Kill the, Bill one and two. He plays the um, the swordsmith who makes yes. Uma Thurman's sword. Where's me thermos? <laughs> yeah. So I can imagine then that his back catalogue must be pretty interesting. Huge. If, if Tarantino is is yeah. interested, I I just cherry picked the western ones because he's in Battle Royale two Requiem. And he's in 2006's Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. So, uh, workaholic in an awful lot of films. And yeah, and Tarantino cherry-picked uh, him to be in Kill Bill. Yeah. I think also he gets a reference in True Romance, which is a script written by Tarantino, isn't it? I'm oh, sure. did that... he write the script for that? Yeah, he did. Oh, wow. Christian, what's the name of the actor? Christian Slater. His character is obsessed with Sonny Chiba, but I don't think he appears in that film. I think he's just referenced in that film. Yeah. He died Except, uh, yes. of COVID complications in yes. 2021. I know. I thought that was really sad. Yeah. It was 82. I know, but I was I was really sad about Sonny Chiba dying from COVID-related illness. Yeah. So you think that that's the end of the film after, after um, Space Chief has, has vanquished the... The aliens, but it isn't. <laughs> oh, it so isn't. No. It goes on There's a lot more running around to have to be had. Yeah. There's like a, a, a storyline now that starts, which I just found utterly bewildering, which is where there's some more interference by the Neptune aliens, who are basically now in their spaceship, kind of like orbiting Earth, I suppose, aren't they? Yeah. Waiting for a moment to attack again. But they they interfere with, with our with our electricity or power. And it means that things start running backwards. Trains, record players, clocks. Yeah, clocks. Um, and I, I just didn't, I didn't understand that. No, it's not really, it's not explained really at all, no, is it? No. And so you've then got this, um, 
this this sort of like this sequence, this sort of cycle of Neptune men wanting to attack, trying to attack, being repelled, and eventually um, being destroyed. But in in the midst of it, I thought is feels like there's a lot of comment on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's a sequence where um, the aliens destroy a nuclear power plant. And there's, it's only for about five seconds, but there's a shot after the explosion has happened um, where it just looks like a nuclear wasteland. Don't know, do you, do you, do you yeah, know the I shot I remember I mean? it, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really striking. At, it, it's really interesting. It's 15 years after Nagasaki. This, this was 1945 and Hiroshima. And um, they, 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 they were not shying away from it at all, were they? No. It was, it's like, you know, there, there were memorials put up and they're still suffering from that. But to have a film like this and to have the other films, like the, uh, the, the kaiju films and the mecha films, they were fully embracing this thing yeah. that happened. And, and these films were a lot for kids. So they were introducing their children to the fact that, because I think that there's a scene in the film when they take over the bodies of Japanese soldiers and then they use these guns and as soon as they shoot somebody, they leave a shadow of that person on the wall. Yeah. And that was one of the striking things that was uh, told to the West of the all that was left of, of a lot of people in Nagasaki and Hiroshima was just their shadows. It's like, it's it feels very obvious that that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and... It's pretty, pretty striking, I think. And that whole sequence was quite sinister as well. Because yeah. The, 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 when, they, when they've got the silver suits on and their phallic headgear, they, then they're just, you know, they're standard robots. But as soon as they embody soldiers, they have an infiltrating power. And yeah. then it became interesting. Yeah, I thought yeah. That, was, that was the best bit. Yeah, it was quite jaw-dropping, I must admit. I yeah. don't know whether it was because the rest of the film was so bloody awful. Then all yeah. of a sudden you get it, you get something that's really interesting. Yeah. At one point there's a, there's a, a quick flash of Hitler on a huge great big billboard on the side of a building with some Japanese writing and Mein Kampf written at the side. <laughs> like he's doing a book like tour. Yeah. Is jaw dropping that, that that was just that appears, and nice. then they repeat they repeat a, a particular sequence of stock footage, and it's memorable because uh, a man is running and he drops his shoes and he wants to go back to get his shoes, but he can't. So, um, uh, the, whoever put the stock footage together just didn't realize that that is that that was quite memorable because you get a bit anxious for him, and then they just showed it about three times. <laughs> <laughs> the same bit. Yeah. My anxiety had waned by the third time. <laughs> oh, just leave the shoes. Yeah, just keep, just just go. Just go. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I was just thinking as you were talking about that, the the interesting thing for me now, watching these films from the, the late fifties, early sixties, from Japan particularly, are the bits where they talk about or want to discuss Hiroshima. And Nagasaki, I think that 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 they are the really super interesting bits, and the rest of it just seems so trite by comparison. It feels like, yeah. and I don't know if it feels it feels so weird to have a film where you've got this very sort of uh, happy-go-lucky um, space chief character, 
in a film where they're openly referencing the sort of horrors of nuclear war. Yeah, but yet in the in the uh, first spaceship on Venus, which is a Russian uh, East German Polish film, which we've covered. Um, in their original version, they talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki all the time in very, very somber tones. Right. And then when it went over to the West, as we've discussed in, in, in the podcast, they cut all of that out mm. when it was shown in America. Yeah. So it seems like the Americans don't really want to address it, yet in Japan they did address it. Yeah. Well, you can, <laughs> yeah, you can see yeah. why. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'd read about the invasion of the Neptune men was that Robbie the Robot makes an appearance, but I didn't see him. Where is he? Where is he, Professor? He is in there because I've been compiling uh, a little video of all of Robbie's <laughs> careers. Some people have blooming make model railways, don't they? <laughs> but you like, compile all of Robbie the Robot's <laughs> media appearances. Yep, that's that's my life. <laughs> that's my life now. <laughs> So where is Robbie the Robot in Invasion of the Neptune Men? Uh, one of the children discovers this kind of radar stick and they decide to test it. So uh, one of them gets a little Robbie toy robot and winds mm. it up and makes it crawl across the floor and they use this radar thing to detect it. Okay. And I think that links into the design of the Neptune Men robots yeah. because they have the uh, little things on their ears or where their ears would be, which is exactly the same as Robbie does, the little discs. So let's rate the robots then. What do we, what, how are we going to rate Neptune Men? If you, this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, we are trying to work out whether the robots in the film Invasion of the Neptune Men are shit or not. And our baseline is 7 out of 10. If they get more than 7 out of 10 or 7 out of 10, then they are not shit. If they get less than 7 out of 10, then they are shit. Stephen Murray, what do you think? Oh, they are shit. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> They're strange, fist-shaking bizarrenesses. Yeah. Quite often we've said in this podcast that robots that are human... And they don't hide the fact that they're being played by humans. Seem to work really, really well. Yeah. Now they make virtually no effort to disguise the fact that <laughs> these are there. There are actors playing these, and yet it just doesn't work at all. No. They had more than one, which is quite good. True. You did we've get had, the feeling that there was a ship full of them. <laughs> yeah, we've watched films before where there's only been <laughs> one suit. <haven't> we? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, what are you going to give them out of ten? Oh, one. Yeah. I was. You know. I was just thinking two. Oh. Uh, so I'm happy with one. Okay. Good. So, um, unfortunately, invasion of the Neptune Men. The Neptune Men are shit. So yeah, the next film on our slate, which looks a lot better and a lot more interesting than Invasion of the Neptune Men, is a 1962 film called The Creation of the Humanoids. Mm. Uh, it's a bit more philosophical. Have you seen it? Yes, it is. I have seen it. Okay. And it's it's interesting. Yeah, it looks interesting. The, the, the little still images I can see look really interesting. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing that. We will be discussing this advanced race of robotic humanoids in the next gripping instalment of 50 Years of Shit Robots. So do us a favour. Um, tell all your friends about it. Go and listen to some back episodes and we will see you um, next time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. 
A strong electronic wave of unknown origin did put our power supply temporarily out of order. Am I right? I'd say that you're correct. 